morning. We get to start a brand new series in the book of Matthew entitled Summer on the Mount. And we're going to spend all summer looking at uh, a portion of Jesus's most famous sermon uh, to the crowd on the side of the mountain there in Galilee. The first sermon that we're going to look at, or the first text and pericope we're going to look look at in this sermon is salt and light. So I want to encourage you, flip open in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and look there in verses 13 through 16. Because we see uh, and are familiar with a lot of the ideas and the words in the Sermon on the Mount, but what we may not do is truly understand uh, in whether one shade or the other or one nuance or the other or sometimes just plain out rightly, don't understand what Jesus is saying when he says things like, you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. And so we have to understand what it means. We have to understand what Jesus is saying and how that impacts and applies to our life. Uh, And as we unravel the meaning of the text this morning, we are going to understand at least this much in the text when it comes to our life, and it's in way of the preaching point. It is that in every situation, believers are responsible for visibly standing out through their good works, resulting in the world seeing our actions and giving glory to God. So you want to know the thrust, uh, the simple meaning of the message, you find it there. But what does that have to do with you and me being salt and being light? What do these metaphors teach us about how Jesus calls all of his disciples to live and to follow him? And if we want to accomplish visibly standing out through our good works, resulting in the world, seeing our lives and giving glory to God, if we want to accomplish this, we've got to learn what these metaphors mean. We've got to learn how we apply these into our lives uh, with solid biblical principles and real-life application. So as we do that, I want you to look at verse 13 with me. There in verse 13, it says that you are the salt of the earth. Notice that. You. right? Something that you're going to need to uh, recognize and understand throughout Uh, most of the Sermon on the Mount, but particularly here in these verses 13 through 16, is uh, the word you is you all, right? Or in Texan, y'all, okay? A lot of times when you read the Bible and you see you, uh, if you're not careful reading the context, you're going to assume it's talking about you or me. me. Like I read and say, oh, it's talking to me. But understand in context, uh, Jesus is talking Uh, primarily to his disciples. I know he's on the mountain, he's talking to a myriad of people, but he can't possibly be addressing just anyone and everyone, although in a way he's addressing the crowds, he's addressing a particular group of people, his disciples, and then on top of his disciples, all of those who are going to follow him. Because not just anybody and everyone's going to be salt, not just anybody and everyone's going to be light. Those who follow Christ are going to be salt and are light. And so he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to those who are going to follow him. And even as we'll see later in John 17, as Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, we recognize that through scripture, Jesus is talking about all of those who will follow Christ due to the testimony 
of the apostles throughout history, including you and me, if you follow Christ. And so here we're saying, we're seeing the text, Jesus saying, you all, those who follow me, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? There's two things to keep in mind, even in the first half of verse 13. The first thing is this. The phrase has lost its taste is actually one Greek word, not the four words that we see in front of us. It's the Greek word moreno. Okay, this is important because much like uh, in our own day, we use phrases and words that have a metaphorical meaning, right? Uh, but they also have a legitimate meaning. For instance, if I tell you it's raining cats and dogs, what does that mean? It's right. Okay, so you don't expect that when you walk outside, felines and canines are going to be falling out of the sky, right? You wouldn't say that, would you? You say that's not what he meant. Okay. Well, in uh, here, we at least have a double meaning. Okay, has lost its taste comes from the Greek word moreno, which means has become foolish or is foolish. And so when you read that text, understanding the literal meaning of that Greek word, when it says you are the salt of the earth, but a salt has lost its taste or has become foolish, useless, no good. The double meaning is also that it's lost its taste. You've got to understand the literary usage of the word. And for us to do that, we recognize that he's not just talking about it's just not that great anymore. He's saying that it's useless. No good. It needs to be thrown out is actually what he says uh, in the rest of verse 13. This kind of salt that is no salt at all is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's the first thing we need to understand, that he's saying that you are, if you are a disciple, you are the salt of the earth. But if you say that you're a disciple, but yet you aren't salty, or you don't, provide the, you don't live and provide the necessary outcomes of the Christian faith, you aren't salty, and therefore you're useless. Now, that's an important distinction to make, because we can't believe that Christ is saying that any Christian would be useless. That's right. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, if anything is useless, what would it be? A person who says they're salt, who says they're Christians, but yet their lives don't reflect it, which shows that they're genuinely not. Right? That would be useless, wouldn't it? For me to say that I'm a Christian, but not being a Christian, that's useless. In the same way, that's what Jesus is saying about the salt of the earth. Now, the second aspect of this is interesting, because Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, but if it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, if you know anything about salt, any salt connoisseurs in here, uh, if you do know much about salt, you know that it's actually impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. It's impossible. It could never happen, which I think is really important when it comes to the Christian faith, because if somebody is genuinely a Christian, they're going to be a Christian. Their life is going to taste like a Christian, smell like a Christian, be like a Christian, and all the metaphors you can use. Our life is just going to reflect the reality and the identity of who we are. And salt... Pure sodium chloride, it can't lose its taste. It's impossible. However, in the first century, the way that people harvested salt, mostly there, at least in, uh, in Israel, Jerusalem, that area in the Middle East, they took from the Dead Sea. Uh, and when they would harvest salt from the Dead Sea, uh, they would harvest the minerals, the salt minerals, but with that, they would also harvest other minerals because it just kind of came with it. And so they, they would harvest all the minerals, and they would take them back, and they would uh, package it and disseminate it. Uh, and there was a way, and there truly was this process accidentally 
that the salt could have been washed away as uh, the salt set for a long time. Uh, And although the real salt is no longer there because it has washed away, all that's left is a big mound of minerals. And big mounds of minerals that aren't salty aren't good for anything. And so if that would be the case, if through whatever process, maybe they had the salt laying somewhere where it was leaking and the water was running through it, and it actually washed out all the salt, because salt does dissolve. You you know that to be true even in the way that you use salt. Uh, If it's all gone from the minerals, the minerals are useless, no good. And Jesus is saying you would do the same thing that he would do. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so, therefore, we have to ensure as we're looking at the text are you salt? Right? Metaphorically, asking, are you a Christian? Are you, are you saved? Are you a follower of Christ? Because followers of Christ will always distinctively look like Christ, and they will be profitable for the things that Christ desires us to be profitable for and fruitful for in the life of the Christian. Now, what is the purpose of salt? We've got to understand, okay, I want, okay, I want to be salt. Jesus says I need to be salt. What does it mean to be salt? Well, there are a lot of usages for salt in Scripture, but there are two major uses of Scripture, uh, salt in Scripture, but not only through Scripture, but throughout history uh, that Jesus is pointing towards. There's two. The first one, you should write it down, it prevents decay. It prevents corruption. And that's one of the major uses throughout history of the properties of salt. As a matter of fact, uh, you know this to be true because uh, if you grew up, maybe your grandma or your mom cooked salt-cured ham. Right? Why? Salt cures it uh, because meat spoils very quickly. As a matter of fact, meat spoils really quickly. Just like beef jerky, it's another one. Have you noticed when you eat beef jerky, it's like really, really salty? Anyone? You ever notice that? Uh, and they're like, man, they, whoever made this just really loves salt. It's like, no. Whoever made that just really, really loves you not getting sick. Okay? And so salt, what it does is it's a, it's a water blocker, right? It, it covers up the water in the meat. It binds it because pathogens and contamination needs water to multiply. And what salt does is it binds water inside the meat so that that meat would be preserved and not decay over time. So salt is really, really important uh, throughout history, especially as we didn't have refrigerators and freezers and the kind of cooling systems that we do today. Salt in that time was extra important to keep things from ruining, decaying, and becoming unuseful. So that is one of the, the main reasons that salt was important. And it's the same way in the Christian life. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, like, you prevent the decay and the corruption of the people around you, of the society around you. You are a useful instrument for God to do his will in this world, only in as much as you will actually be who you are, your identity. In as much as I use salt to cure meat, it will prevent corruption in the meat. Okay, it doesn't mean that if I just have salt, I have a bunch of salt and I have a bunch of meat, but if I don't utilize the salt for what it's useful for, it's not going to prevent decay in the meat. You understand, we can't just say, well, I got it, that's who I am, but, but you're not going to apply it. That's useless. Now, I want to be clear. 
I'm, we're not a, I'm not a post-millennialist, and I'm sure neither are you. Right? We don't believe that we're going to prevent decay in such a way where we usher in the kingdom or that we do so much good that we're going to Christianize the world. We don't believe at all that that's what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, we believe the world's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to redeem it, and he's going he's to institute the millennial kingdom. That's what we believe. That's what we trust when we read Scripture. Uh, however, that shows you how much important your job is because you know the current direction of our society is downhill. We're, just, we're in downhill in a hurry. So how much more important is it for you to be the salt of the earth because you do know the world is decaying, you do know the world is being corrupted, and you actually have a responsibility in Christ Jesus to slow down and mitigate and truncate the speed in which the world is being corrupted and decaying in not just because you want to make the world a better place, not just because uh, you want your children to grow up in a school system where they could go to without being concerned, not because of those things. I mean, you have to read, number, you have to read verse 16 to understand why Jesus wants you to be the salt of the light. So that when people look at your life, they look at your good works, and they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? That's the point. That's why you are salt. Jesus says, you are salt. I have saved you for a purpose. Go be salty. Go make a difference. Okay, number one, it prevents decay and corruption. And secondly, it provides flavor and zest. I mean, it, I mean, it does. I mean, this is the same reason you use salt. Uh, today, this is the reason you use sodium chloride, NaCl, salt, table salt. Okay. Uh, my wife, uh, we had some life group leaders over last night, uh, too dear to our heart, and uh, my wife made some Mexican food, and she made uh, guacamole. And she said, try this. She gave me a chip put it in the guacamole, and I put it in my mouth, and you know what came out of my mouth? Needs more salt, okay? It needs more salt. Salt flavors things and gives a distinctness to it that helps it taste good, makes it good for me, okay? In the same way, salt, even in that time, was good to flavor their food and their life. Throughout history, salt has had a major influence in providing a distinctive nature to society, whether it's through preservation or whether it's through flavoring. And in the same way, that's the same way that Christians live their lives to slow down corruption and decay and to provide flavor and a zest when it comes to knowing God, following God, and showing the world who God is. Right? We provide a distinct influence in the world that no one else can, just like salt provides a distinct influence that nothing else, no other mineral in the world can provide, only salt can do it. In the same way, you as a Christian provide something that distinctly only Christians can provide. And that's what you should put on point number one. You need to provide a distinct influence in the world. Provide a distinct influence in the world. I remember even growing up, like, we salt everything. I mean, cans, you know, canned food. I used to think, like, if I, like, canned food was healthy until I moved to California from Texas. And they all told me that it wasn't healthy because they're really crunchy up there. And, like, no, you need to pick it off the stem in the field, right? It doesn't have salt in it, you know. Uh, and what I realized is canned vegetables, when you turn them over and you look at the sodium content in vegetables, how much sodium is in a can of vegetables, and you would think, those people just love salt. No, 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 no. They're preserving it. They're trying to prolong the shelf life. And in a real way, that's what we do in our society, right? None of us want to live in a corrupted society. Anybody? anybody? Okay. We don't. We don't want to do that. But in a real way, as we are being the salt of the earth, 
Uh, we are preserving society. Uh, we are a common grace in our world as God uh, is mitigating his wrath and his judgment until he takes his church away. Just read Revelation and uh, start reading where uh, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 when the church is then raptured. And look what happens to society when the church is gone. Literally, all hell breaks loose on earth. So in a real way, we are mitigating so much of the judgment of God by you and I living in this world and providing people uh, a saltiness that is a distinction that prevents decay and providing people a distinct taste that shows them the kingdom of God. I mean, I remember even when I was a kid, like, I put salt on watermelon, okay? Anybody do that? Okay, we're going to hang out after this. We're going to go eat some watermelon because I didn't know that that wasn't a thing that everyone did. All right. And I started doing that as I got older and it, I was judged quickly. <laughs> but it's like everything, everything, everything has, has salt in it. And what would it look like if everything in our world had the salt of Christians in it? That we were in everything and, 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 and we were motivated by glorifying God and everything. Then we were the salt of the earth. And we pointed to the kingdom to come. We said that this world isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. But we are looking forward to the day when Christ comes and makes himself known and institutes the millennial kingdom, takes us to be with him, takes us back down here with him, and we reign with him for a thousand years. And then he, he, we go to the eternal state where we reign with Christ forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Like, I, I want to point people to that. And every day, from the moment of my salvation to the moment of my glorification, when Christ brings me to him, that's my whole life, is being salt on the earth pointing people to the reality of the kingdom of God that is to come. Now, I'm going to flip you to John 17, just a couple of books over in your Bible from where you are currently. John 17. Go ahead and stop there at verse 14. I want you to see that, that Christ, even with his disciples, all those who were to believe afterwards, he has left us here for a particular purpose. There in verse 14, are you there? You, are you still looking? That's okay. I, that is no judgment from the pulpit. Okay, Jesus in John 17, this is the high priestly prayer. I mean, this is a really, I mean, just special section of scripture where Jesus is praying for his disciples to God. He's praying to God, praying for the disciples, but he also, there's a section there where he prays for you and I. He, he prays for you and I. Like, we're literally in the text that Jesus is praying for you and me. And, and so let's read. Look at it. Verse 14. I have given them, that is the disciples, or I have given the disciples your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We talked about that in the Beatitudes last week, the suffering, the realities of suffering and persecution in the life of the Christian. And Jesus says, well, when it comes to that, I know, I know the world's going to hate them. I know they're going to be persecuted. And Jesus says in verse 15, but I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I love that. You need to recognize and understand that your job as a Christian is not to go to the desert uh, and practice monasticism, right? You're not to go out there and build a, a giant building and just sit there and hum and pray and read your Bible all day with no connection to the outside world. That was not Jesus' plan for the Christian life. And it says it right there. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He says they're not of the world, but they're going to be in the world. And in the same way, you as a Christian are in the world, but not of the world. And your life should make a distinct difference 
because you are living in the world, though you're not of the world. You have a different citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth. Your love is for the kingdom of heaven, not for the things of the world. You're just going to look different. And then he says to sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. We want to grow in Christ. We've got to use the word of God. But I want you to look at verse 20. Skip down to verse 20. Well, yeah, verse 20. I'll show you 18 in a little bit. Uh, it says there that when it comes to this, I do not ask for these only. He's saying, I'm not just talking about the apostles here, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? Christians throughout history. He's like, I'm not just praying for the disciples. I'm praying for everyone who will believe in me through the witness and testimony of the apostles. Well, that's everyone who has come to Christ since the apostles. He's praying for us. What is he praying for? That they may all be one. Well, that's important when it comes to salt, isn't it? That we all be one, that we all be unified. Why is that important with salt? Have you ever taken one grain of salt and put it on something and said, that'll do? Like, you've never done that, have you? Well, you're not going to do that with the Christian life. It takes all of us. It takes y'all. It takes you all, us all, because it is not just that we have one grain of salt, but we have a plethora of salt. We have a whole case of salt. We have a whole church of salt, and that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, okay? For what reason? Look at the text that the world may believe. Did you see that? That the world may believe. Jesus is praying for us to live in this world, not to be of the world, but to definitely be in the world, that we would live in such a way as a congregation, as we relate to the Father, as we relate to the Son, we would relate to one another in unity and in a common goal to help the world know and believe that God has sent the Christ to save the world from their sin. We have a distinct obligation and responsibility to let people know through our lives and through our good works that Jesus is the Christ. Now, hey parents, just think about this for a moment. Provide a distinct influence in the world. Think about your parenting. Right? Your parenting should make a difference in the outcome of your child's life. Isn't that, isn't that kind of counter to what you're, you're lear you've learned in, in our culture? Uh, think about it. I mean, you've been taught, do as little to your child as possible so that you don't mess them up. Isn't that kind of how we've been taught? Like, like you, your job is to get your children out of your home with as little emotional scars and mental scars as possible. Right, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of what the world is telling us to do. Don't tell them what to do. Don't make them choose this way or this way. You just need to let them be them and, and let them kind of work it out as they go. Well, how has that gone for us? Not well, okay? However, you providing a distinct influence in the life of your children by being salt is going to look a lot different than how the world would raise their children. I mean, you are going to, in being salt, Raise your children in a distinct kind of way, okay? We have this weird cultural reality where parents will say, well, I don't make my children go to church. You know, I don't make them go to church because I want them to choose it uh, themselves. Or I don't want them to hate church, and I feel like if I force them to go to church, they're not going to want to go to church. I'm like, do you lose that logic when you ask them to go to school? We don't. Hey, would you like to go to school day? Absolutely not. Well, I'm not going to make you. I'm not going to make you do that. 
I would hate to make you hate going to school. Right, we, don't, we don't use that logic to things, right? Well, it would be illogical and irrational to suggest that you are the salt of the earth, but that as you're raising your children, you don't teach them what it means to be the salt of the earth. But we look at them and say, hey, every Sunday, the world goes and has Sunday fun day. But what we do is we go and glorify God by fellowshipping with the saints and sitting under the teaching of God's word every week because we're salt. We provide a distinct influence. We choose to do things particularly to show people that there's a difference in the lives of those who follow Jesus. I mean, you, you keep going, even, even as you're thinking about parenting, like your discipline is different. You discipline your children, you just do. Why? Because Hebrews tells us that as a father disciplines those he loves, so your heavenly father disciplines you. And it's not pleasant, and it's not wonderful, and it's not enjoyable at the time, but it produces a righteousness that they would not have without it. Okay? We have to be distinct. We take our direction for child rearing from the pages of Scripture. And if Scripture says it, I believe that all Scripture is theopneustos, right? Breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible tells me how to raise my children, and I got to be distinct about it. What about the singles in the room? Right? The, the idea of being a single in our culture isn't it uh, to have as much fun and do as much as what you want to do as you can before you're hitched and before you have somebody that you're accountable to? Right? Isn't, isn't, that the, isn't that the goal of the single life, according to culture? But according to Scripture, Paul has a different plan in the way that he relates to God as a single Paul says marriage is so good. As a matter of fact, over and over again, he says you should, you should edify marriage. You should highly esteem marriage. You need to keep the marriage bed undefiled. That bed is meant for a husband and a wife and nobody else. But what he also says is, I wish all were as myself. Paul was single. And he said, I wish all were as myself because when people have families, and believe it, I got a family, okay? When you got a family, there is a lot of distractions there is a lot of commitments that a father makes to his son and his daughters and that a husband has to make to his wife that takes a lot of time. And there is a stewardship in that. There is a godliness and a man taking care of his home and a wife stewarding her home and her children. But there is something about living a single life to the glory of God because you have nothing in your way to give all of your time over to God. And Paul says, I wish everyone was like me. I wish everyone can give every millisecond of their time for the advancement of the gospel and for growing in their knowledge of God. But in our culture, it's, it's a reason for us to do what we want, make our schedule the way we want it, sleep in as late as we want, stay up as late as we want, because I don't really, I don't have anything to do tomorrow. Like that was never Paul's intentions about being single. It was always that I'm going to utilize my life for the advancement of the gospel and for the ministry to the saints. Always. That's far from the do whatever you want mantra in our, in our single world view that we live in. And we got to recognize that if you're going to provide a distinct influence in the world as a single, you got to start living like a single who has single thing on their mind, and that is Jesus Christ. 
We can't be people tossed to and fro. We got to be people who recognize there's a purpose for my life here on this side of eternity, on this side of glorification, and it is to give glory to God in everything that I choose to do. And as a matter of fact, sometimes even more so the things I choose not to do. Your life matters in the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan if you're in Christ and your life ought to reflect it. Salt, that's the first metaphor. But Jesus provides a second metaphor to define the life of the disciple there in verse 14. So look at verse 14. Again, it says that that y'all are the light of the world. Y'all are the light of the world. Did you notice something? It didn't say that you are a light, did it? It didn't say you're a light of the world. It says you're the light of the world. Like there is, there is no light outside of you being the light. And this is an important distinction because Jesus says this. Jesus says this about the disciples of Christ, that there is no light in this world outside of you being the light. And, and why can I say that? Because John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but still have the light of life. And then in the high priestly prayer that we skipped over, verse 18 earlier, Jesus then says what? Father, as you sent me into the world to be the light of the world, now I am sending them into the world to be the light of the world. Jesus says, I am leaving. But as I go, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll give you the comforter. I'll give you the Holy Spirit who will be with you. And as he's with you, you recognize you're the light of the world. I'm leaving. I'm coming back, and the world will be accountable to me. The world will be subjected to me. But they're going to know this because you are being the light. You are telling people the realities of Scripture. You are, as Matthew 28 says, are making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. That's your job. You recognize that being salt and light is directly connected to the Great Commission. There is no alternative to the Christian life but to be salt, to be light, make disciples. And they're not three different things. That's what being salt and light is. I mean, you're telling people, hey, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light. Like, people are, if people are going to know about the gospel, it's going to be because we told them. Right? And that's something that we often don't want to do. I, you know, I like to fly under the radar. Right? I, don't like, I, don't, I, don't, I like to go along to get along. Right? But like, if that's the attitude of the church, of y'all and us all, like, people aren't going to get saved. And I'm going to tell you something. You should get excited. There's been dozens of people who have got saved at Compass over the last month or two. I'm talking about I've, I've never seen so many people being drawn to Christ and responding to the gospel through turning from their sin and placing their trust into Christ. And it's something you should get excited about. But I'm telling you, get excited about it, not because you're doing it, but because God's producing that in people, and he's distinctly doing that because I believe that there are people here being salt and being light. And when people look at your life, and they look at your good works, and they look at what God's doing here, they say, that's distinct, and I have never experienced that, and I have never understood that. And for the first time in my life, I do. Not because we're glorifying ourselves, but because we're glorifying God. And when you are the salt of the earth in Christ Jesus, and you are the light of the world in Christ Jesus, you're going to draw people, and you're going to influence the world. Right? And then it tells you, the rest of verse 14, 
you're the light of the world, but a city on, is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Like, do you understand the oxymoronic idea of building a city on a hill and then saying, let's turn all the lights off, right? I don't want anybody seeing me. It's like, then you should have built in a valley, right? You should have built in a plain, right? I mean, you should have built on a plateau on the back of it so when people came to the front of it, they didn't see you. But you didn't. You, got, you built on a hill. Like, you were meant, it was meant to be visible to everyone around, and it says in verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, because that's what lamps do. They stand out and they give light to all in the house. You know, lamps are pretty public pieces of furniture in the house, aren't they? They're very public. Have you ever, have you ever hidden a lamp? I mean, there's a lot of furniture you hide. I mean, there's a lot of gifts you get from people that you hide, right? And you, you pull it out when they're around and say, it's been sitting here for years, okay? Uh, but lamps, you don't do that, do you? Like, lamps are in that place that you know that when you turn it on, it's going to provide as much cover as it can. That's, that's the purpose of a light. Your, your life as a Christian is to provide as much light as possible wherever you are. That means this, that your life should not be private. Okay, there are so many Christians who talk so much about, I have a private life. I want to live my private life. When I go home, that, that, my house is just my castle where I go to decompress and just let it loose. And I'm like, where does the Bible say that's what your house is for? Why don't you go learn from Lydia in the book of Acts what your house is for? She'll tell you what her house was for. It was to give the keys over to the apostles and say, hey, that's my house over there. The Lord reigns in my house. Go use it however you need to for the advancement of the kingdom. Lydia said, that's Lydia's intentions and attitude towards what her house is for and what her life is for. She didn't say, well, don't go into that room. Don't go in that room. My life is public. Your life is public. Your home is a stewardship. Your family is a stewardship. Everything you have is meant to be on display for all to see because you are the light. And it says, well, in the same way, that's what you do. You're a lamp out in public. You're a city set on a hill. And so, therefore, it says, let your light shine. There's your imperative. You want an imperative? Like you want a verb in Scripture? This is a verb that Jesus says to do. Imperatives are amazing in Scripture because there's so many words in the Bible that you often wonder, well, what is it actually telling me to do? Like, what does it tell me to do? Like, I know it's, oh, there's all of these stories, all these narratives, but how do I know what's there for me to do? Well, imperatives are a great place to start because when a verb is used in the second or third person, it's either telling me to do something or us all to do something. And here, the imperative is shine before others. There's the word shine before others. Like, that's your job. You want to know what Jesus is looking at you and saying to do? Go shine in the presence of other people. Not to give glory to yourself, but to point people to the realities of the kingdom of God and the truth of the nature of God. And it all starts with our identity, you do understand. It's our identity in Christ that compels us to be salt and to be light. I am salt because of who I am, not because of what I do. I'm light because of who I am not because of what I do, but who I am informs what I do, you understand? I, there's so many churches that said what you, do, what you do is not important. Where does the Bible say that? What you do is not important. As a matter of fact, I know Ephesians 2.10 says that you are the workmanship of Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Like Literally, it tells me, no, that's exactly what I'm here to do. Like I, I exist for good works 
that have been prepared beforehand that I would walk in them. Like that is my whole life is to produce good works in the name of Christ for the glory of God. And you know how I know that? Because I belong to Jesus. It doesn't matter if I'm pushing a broom, if I'm hanging up lights, or if I'm the CEO of Tyson Chicken or Chick-fil-A or KFC, a lot of chicken places. Other ones too, I'm sure. It doesn't matter which one I am. Like, like who I am informs how I do those things to glorify God. And so, yeah, go do all those things great, but not because you're the CEO and not because you're the custodian, but because you are Christ's. And if I'm pushing a broom, I'm going to be the best broom pusher you've ever met in your life. And I am going to be someone who provides such a distinct influence and produce such a noticeable presence that they're going to be like, what is wrong with that guy? No, what's right with that guy? There's not a lot of things right, but there's one thing right. He is, belongs to Christ. And Christ is his and he is Christ's. And we provide a noticeable presence in the life of people. And that's point number two. Write that down. You need to produce a noticeable presence. Like you, have, you have to produce a noticeable presence. Like understand, if you look at the text, as you're writing, just to parse it out a little bit more verbally, just like a city that is built on a hill is in its very existence something to be seen. Like, think about this. The ontology of a building set on a hill, its existence, why it was created. Why would you build something on a hill? Its very existence is something to be seen, something to be looked at. I mean, that's why it exists. There is no other reason it's built there other than the fact that it is desired to be seen. And a lamp is a very conspicuous object, right? You ever seen an inconspicuous lamp? You don't, because lamps are there to be seen. You never say, oh, I didn't know that was a lamp. I mean, you walk into a house and you say, well, there's the lamp. This is what you do. In the same way, that's, that's the Christian. There they are, being Christian, right? You walk into the house, there they are, being a light. I mean, that's just who we are. That's what we do. We produce a noticeable presence in the room, I mean, think about it, just Christ, literally Christ always made his presence known. And he, he didn't have to be bombastic. Uh, I need to understand this too for those of you like, who are like super like, into apologetics and, and defending the gospel. And you, some, of, some of you like really hyper-reformed people that's like, yeah, tell them. Okay, but you don't become those who are argumentative or slanderers. Uh, you need to understand the definitions of gentleness and respect. Right? The reality that you are salt and light, right? You aren't the, you aren't the jury and the judge, okay? Put that over there. You got to produce a noticeable presence. I was watching uh, some YouTube videos the other day, and I was scrolling up, and I saw this video pop up of bodybuilders walking and doing normal things like normal people, like they have time to do that kind of stuff, you know? And uh, they're like going shopping, they're walking outside, they're walking the dogs, they're like playing with their kids in the park, uh, and they're massive. I mean, they got muscles on muscles, they look like mountains, okay? Like, and they're just huge. And when they're walking and doing these things that you and I do, people are just looking at them like, ah, like I used to look like that too. <laughs> Liars, okay? And people are staring because their physiques, I mean, they're just like, wah! You know, like these people are just, they just, they're noticeable. They make their presence very noticeable. 
And, and that's the same way the Christian life. Like when you're out, whatever you're doing, and that's, there's a really good parallel there. Just doing normal things. I mean, these guys weren't doing push-ups. They were just walking. They were just shopping. They were just loving on their kids and loving on their family. But yet they made a difference and they were noticed. And people had to stop and look and say, wow, they're different. That's the life of Christians, that we would be obvious, that we'd be spreading, as 2 Corinthians says, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You can flip to that verse. Would you flip to 2 Corinthians with me? 2 Corinthians 2. Starting in verse 14. It's a great verse to memorize, to commit to your memory, to have it written down somewhere. Really, the, the whole reason for your existence, you can find it here in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, through the work of Christ. Right? Through the work of Christ there in verse 14, it says, But thanks be to God who in Christ, because of the work of Christ, because he died for my sins, I, I placed my trust. He produced faith. He produced repentance in me. I've trusted in him for my salvation. I'm sealed for eternity. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what it says. But thanks be to God who in Christ, who in the work of Christ, in the person of Christ, always leads us in triumphal procession. I love that. Right? You realize the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. I mean, there's the truth, okay? And so many Christians walk around, you know, twiddling their thumbs with their head down, their hands behind their back. I don't know how you twiddle your thumbs with your hand behind their back, but you can figure it out. Uh, and they just like, like so defeated all the time. Like, their life has, like, no significant meaning. It's like, have you ever read the gospel of Jesus Christ? Your life has significant meaning, not in and of yourself. It has meaning because of who you belong to. And if you would recognize that who you are, your identity is not wound up in who you want to be, your true self, none of those things. It's wound up in whose you are. And I would imagine when you belong to the world, as Scripture says, you do feel like you don't have meaning and you do feel like you don't have purpose because the world says that your life is meaningless and purposeless. But in Christ Jesus, he says that my life matters in him and that he has created me to do things for him as I'm waiting on him to come get me to take me back to him and the Father. Like my life has ample meaning. And part of that is here. Christ is always leading us in triumphal procession, verse 14. And through us, did you notice that again? That through us, like you're the salt, you're the light. And he's saying here that Christ is working through us and he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere through us. Like we are, for the eight point some odd billion people that live in the world, we are the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere to everyone. There is not a single person outside the scope of our responsibility to spread the fragrance. And what is the fragrance? We've got, we got a lot uh, we have a lot of analogies here. We got a lot of metaphors, but the, no, but, but the fragrance is the knowledge of Christ. You exist to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Right? To just the people who are being saved? No, absolutely not. Look at verse 15. For we are the aroma to, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You see that. Look, who is my job and my responsibility in evangelism to wait around for the person I think is going to get saved and then share the gospel with them? Absolutely not. Like, my job is to share the gospel with every single person. And even, and this is something that we think in our evangelism, well, you know, if they didn't come to Christ, I'm a failure. I didn't do my job. Not according to 2 Corinthians 2. Because 2 Corinthians 2.15 tells me 
that we are the aroma to Christ, to God, to God, right? You're, you, literally, God is pleased as you share the gospel and the knowledge of Christ among all of those people, the ones being saved and the ones who are perishing, because you're doing something really, really important. You are a fragrance from death to death to those who are perishing, and you are a fragrance from life to life to those who are being saved. Simply, what are you doing? You're announcing the rule and reign of God on earth through his people. And when somebody rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that they can reject the gospel, but they can't reject the truth of the reality that you just said, God reigns through his son, Jesus Christ, and desires to bring anyone who would call upon his name into his kingdom. They would trust in Christ. That's just a truth statement. You can deny the truth, but the truth is the truth. And our job is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, to proclaim the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Because what we're doing as we're being salt and we're being light is we are just simply proclaiming the rule and reign of God on earth, which matters with how you live now, doesn't it? Because every single day you live and you work and you make decisions, you are a prime example to our world of what you believe about the reign of God in Christ. When people look at our lives and how we live every day, they can look at us, and I frown at the fact that many people can look at our lives as Christians and say, well, they don't, they don't act like God reigns. I mean, the way they're dealing with that situation, the way they're dealing with conflict, I mean, what I hear coming out of their mouth, if the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, I can't believe that that person's heart's been changed by Christ. How, how, can, how can people understand the truth of the rule and reign of God in Christ, if you aren't salt and light to people to help them understand what the rule and reign of Christ looks like here as we wait for it to be ushered in in Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? We have to be salt and light. We have to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, and it comes verbally, and it comes non-verbally. I mean, think about your work. I mean, I don't even know how many of you act at work, okay? Uh, and maybe I don't want to know, but I hope I do. Like, Scripture says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And you ask yourself at work, like, what are you doing at work to show people that, that God and his word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? I mean, think about how do you instill and, and help people understand through you being solid and you being light that Christ reigns in your life? I mean, do people know you're a Christian? I mean, what do you do at work during lunch? I mean, do, do, would you have a Bible study? Do you ever have your Bible open? I mean, do you pray before work? Do you invite people to public prayer in, in, in your work? I mean, I mean, these are just little things, but they're, they're good deeds, aren't they? They're good works that people will see, and they will glorify God in heaven. I mean, that's part of your responsibility to be noticeable. In, in your work, it's really easy to be noticed for Christ. What about workplace conflict? That's a place where you get noticed real quick, and we notice real quick if you're actually peacemaking or peacefaking or peacebreaking. Are you a peacemaker at work? When people have conflict, do they come to you because they know that you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and you can help people make peace? Or are you the person they say, stay away from that person because they know nothing about peace? And if they know nothing about peace, how can they know anything about the peace of Christ that rules in our hearts? You see, right? You see every, every one of the objections I'm putting up. If your life doesn't reflect the reality of who Christ is, how in the world can people look at you and think Christ is there? Which takes me back to the first part of this. You're the salt of the earth. But if you, you ain't salt, how can your saltiness be restored? Well, it can't because you were never salt to begin with. Your life ought to reflect who Christ is, the character and nature of Christ. What about your family? Extended family, okay? 
extended. I'm not talking about the ones at home. I'm talking about the ones you go see. What do they think about your life? I mean, when, when you go to them, you're about to go, Thanksgiving is going to come up, Fourth of July is coming up. I mean, we've got, we've got all the holidays are left, basically, right? Nothing happens between January and right now. We've got all the family holidays coming up. Okay, what do they think about you? If I ask them, are they the salt of the world? Are they the light of the world? You tell me about them. What are they going to say is your witness and testimony to them? Is your presence and your influence for Christ on display for your family? Remember, it's all about your identity. Right? It's your identity in Christ that provides the basis for every Christian to live out our chief end. Right? You know the catechisms. Right? You know the confessions. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, that's, even throughout church history, they say, what, is, what does a Christian exist for? And for some reason, we've lost this because in our world, people don't know what you're here for. But it's like, I mean, throughout history, they've said the same thing. You exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Every single thing that you do exists for that one purpose. Why? Because you are Christ. Your identity is wound up in who he is. And that's exactly what the rest of verse 16 says if you put your eyes on it there in chapter 5. It says this, I'm going to be a light, I'm going to be salt, you're going to be light, you're going to be salt. Why? So that they may see y'all's good works, our all's good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Glory, doxazo, where it means to praise and to honor. Like through your life, through what you do in your life to represent Christ in this world brings glory and honor and praise to your Father who is in heaven. You've got to recognize that good works are not an add-on to the Christian life. They're not an add-on. Like Good works are what your life on this side of Christ is all about. Like even, think about if you even think about your eternity, I don't have all the details about eternity, but I, I know this much, you're going to be put to work in eternity, right? In the same way that Christ desires to put you to work here. Like we're workers for Christ as we wait for him. And even as we get into eternity, we're going to be working for him some more. Like that's our job is to provide good works that people would see and give glory and honor to God. R.T. France, uh, he's a, a commentator. He uh, writes the, one of the commentaries that we have for sale in the bookstore. And this is what he says about salt and light. He says, the subject of this discourse, the aim of the discipleship which this discourse promotes is not so much the betterment of life on earth. Now, did you hear that? Even the commentary, same, same thing I'm going to say, is not about the betterment of life on earth, which is what so many people want to make Jesus about and the Sermon on the Mount about. It's like, well, if everybody would just be these things, the world would be a better place. It's like, read Matthew 23. Like, Read, it's not getting better. But what you are is you're a distinct difference in society, helping them understand their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he said, it's not about the betterment of life on earth, as it is the implementation of the reign of God. You recognize as you are living for the Lord here, it's actually you implementing, submitting through the power of the Holy Spirit to the reign of God in your life. That's why I always say, do I have to submit to Jesus as Lord? It's like, yeah, yeah, that's literally what the kingdom of God is all about. It's called the kingdom of God. Who's, whose kingdom is it? God's. Who reigns over the kingdom? God. Who's in the kingdom? You. Who's submitting in the kingdom? You. 
me. Like, we are part of the kingdom. We are the implementation of the reign of God here. Your life should reflect, as Jesus' prayer reflects in the Sermon on the Mount, that, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see that? Will. Implementation. God's desire, God's will would be happening in our life as followers of Christ here as it is there. I want that to change the way you think about this idea that you ain't got to do nothing and worry about nothing until we get there. He's going to get it all fleshed out there. But it's, then why does Jesus pray that his, the will of the Father would be done here as it is there in the life of the disciples? Because he demands through his lordship in our lives that we would submit to him in every way and that the implementation of the reign of God would be evident here as we are salt and we're light. Continuing, it says, the goal of the disciples' witness is not that others emulate their way of life or applaud their probity, but that they recognize the source of their distinctive lifestyle in your Father in heaven. Like, that, that, that's the point, that they recognize the source of your distinct lifestyle, that they recognize that you're living that way because you live under the Lordship of Christ. That's why I'm this way. Not because I want to make the world a better place, although that's going to happen as I'm the salt of the earth. I am going to delay decay and corruption. That is just that's a byproduct of my identity. But that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I want everybody to understand the distinct lifestyle that I live is in Christ for my Father who is in heaven. This is why we need to understand and properly understand the purpose of good works. And that's point number three. You need to properly understand the purpose of good works. Because if you understand them, that it's, it's, it's for you to give honor and glory to the Father. And I know you're going to say, you're, well, doesn't the next chapter over tell me that like, I'm not supposed to uh, do my good deeds so other people can see me? That I'm not supposed to pray out in public for other people to notice me? I'm like, yeah, it does say that. It says that you aren't to go do good works for people to notice you. And you aren't to go and pray so people notice and glorify you. You do it so that they glorify God. Because he says, for those people who do it to glorify themselves, they've received their reward in full. That's not for God. That was for you. But for those who are willing to submit under the lordship of Christ, all those things are meant to bring honor and glory to God the Father. And I am there as a vessel for people to see, a broken vessel, a vessel of clay with cracks all around it for people to say, how could something good come out of that guy? That's, that's the identity of a Christian. That something good could come out of you can't be because of you. Amen. Exactly. That's why good works matter. Because what they see coming out of me isn't because of me. You want, you want to see the nature of our existence? I've got one more verse. First Peter, you don't have to flip to it, just jot this down. First Peter 2, 4 through 10. And I'll just start in verse 5. First Peter 2, uh, 5 through 10. It says, you, that is you all again, you all yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Uh, tell me what massive structure in the Bible was built out of stones uh, as a spiritual house for God? The temple. Okay. Uh, what was the temple there for? It was there as a geographical location of the presence of God ruling and reigning in Israel. And people over and over again said, look at that thing. That thing's beautiful. Even the disciples said, look at this thing, Jesus. It's beautiful. And he has something else to say about it to prove his own death and resurrection. But the reality is people looked at it and they said, wow, it provided glory and honor to the Father because of what it was. And it says, you are like the temple 
to bring honor and glory to God, when they look at all of us being built up into the spiritual dwelling place for God, they say, whoa, look at that place. Look at those people. It says we're a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're the holy priesthood. We are set apart to serve God. That's what the priesthood did. They didn't get an allotment of land. They did, they did without. Their share, as the Old Testament says, is God. I love it. Their share was God. They didn't get one of the 12 tribes. The priesthood didn't. But they got God, and they served God every day. And they offered spiritual sacrifices. That was the job of the priesthood. And that's the job of the Christian life, to offer spiritual sacrifices, to do good works. That is part of our spiritual sacrifices. Then skip down to verse 9. And it continues telling you what you are in Christ. You are a chosen race. Think about that. Like, you are chosen. You've been plucked out of the world and been placed into a chosen family of God. That's pretty distinct, isn't it? You are a royal priesthood. It's not just that you're a priesthood. You are now a child of God and an heir to Christ Jesus. And you're a holy nation. You're listening to this. A people for his own possession. Like This is who you are. This is your identity. right? If you want an identity, you want to know who you are, that's who you are. Now, what are you here for because of who you are? Well, it tells you that too. You're a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you see that? You are all these things so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You understand the purpose of good works. You recognize that you are in Christ and you're all the things that you are because Christ has saved you for a purpose and it is to proclaim the excellencies of God. You're going to do it. You should do it for the rest of your life here. And if you're a Christian, you're going to do it once. One way or the other, uh, and you're definitely going to do that for eternity. That's literally what the kingdom of God is all about. And that's why I tell you, you know, and I don't know, I've never heard a preacher say that, but I'm sure somewhere they do. This isn't about turning your light on or, or you know, uh, for producing more salt or, or pouring more salt into your life. It's like, no, no, no. You are a Christian. Like, like you are light. You ain't turn it on. It's just that's who you are. Like, you are salt. It's not that you need more salt. You're as, you're as much salt as there is salt. You're just salt. You're salt. You're light. Go be salt and go be light. Finally, your identity in Christ played out through your good works produces the outcome God intended for creation. You recognize it. Like your life in Christ Jesus as you are salt and light produces the outcome that God created all people for. From Adam and even to the garden, when he created it, he said, it's all good. I love everything I've created. Now, Adam, go and rule and subdue and have dominion over what I have given you. Go do good works for my name and for my glory. In the same way, you rule and reign, have dominion, be salt, be light for the glory of God. God intends for you to do good works. God intends that your good works glorify and exalt him in all creation. So my exhortation for you, church, is not turn your light on or you know, pour some more salt on your life. It's like if you're in Christ, that's who you are. You're light and you're salt. Go be salt and go be light. Let's pray. Father, my great prayer for our church is that as we, as we heed the exhortation here in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, uh, we recognize the genuine responsibility and stewardship we have uh, in Christ, that our identity compels us to glorify you in every single thing that we do and say. And I pray that that would be the mark of our church 
and what we're known for in this city, in this world, that we are salt and that we are light. God, as we look across Scripture and the meta-narrative of all Scripture, we recognize that you've always called a people to yourself to bring honor and glory to yourself. And we want to be that here. And God, even as we await the coming of your Son to bring his kingdom here, God, we want to give you glory here. And we want to be prepared to give you the glory even there. So help us now, even as we're being trained up for the purpose of giving you honor and praise, and even as we are awaiting your return, God, help us be good representations of you here as we install in so many practical ways your reign here on earth, that your will would genuinely be uh, on earth as it is in heaven, at least in our kingdom outpost here at Compass Bible Church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.